I invite you to turn in the scriptures to 2 Samuel to chapter 3. Now, the fact that we are in 2 Samuel, if you've been here for any length of time, signals that we are returning to our previous series in this historical book. I imagine that we will do that fairly often here, come into a book of the Bible, be in it for a period of months, and then step out for a little bit at a natural break and come back in. Now, maybe you haven't been here or you would benefit from a recap as we are about to come into a story. It'll help to know where we've been, where we are. Basically, originally, First and Second Samuel were one book, and you have the story of God providing a king for his people, a king according to what they desired, and he was a bad king, Saul. And then God, in grace, provides for them another king. He chooses David, a man after his own heart. But before David becomes king, you have the beginning of what will become a power struggle. You have Saul who doesn't trust David. David is fleeing. After Saul dies, then part of the people of God, the tribe of Judah, pledges loyalty to David. They acknowledge the anointing that he has through the prophet Samuel. But the majority do not. The majority follow Ishbosheth, who's the son of Saul, and he is kind of put into position by the real person in power, who's a general named Abner. We left off last time with Abner after a long period of civil war, a period of several years. Abner has a falling out with Ishbosheth, and Abner goes to David to offer to hand the kingdom over to David to reunify the people of God under one king. David gave him one set of terms, Abner accepts the terms. And now we're right at the point where Abner is going to go out and try to persuade the tribes that were not under David to come under David. That's where we're at. Now let's hear the word of God beginning at verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to bless it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We ask even now as we are gathered here that you would, in faithfulness, speak to us. Guide us in your path, please, by your Holy Spirit. 
Give us understanding from your word. Give us wisdom for life. Increase our faith. Wherever there is need for repentance, we pray that you would soften our hearts. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The overarching story of the books of Samuel is very simple. The basic story of Samuel is about God's desire in grace to give his people the king that they need. That's the simple essence of the story, his desire to give his people the king that they need. You could add a lot to that. Like he also implicitly desires that king to receive the glory and the honor of being the king. That's implied in this. He also desires that his people would receive the benefits of having this king because the king he's chosen is a good king. That's part of this as well. He desires that his people would get along with one another. They're in one kingdom, that they wouldn't have strife and division. But the basic story is that he desires his people to be united under one king, his anointed one, his chosen one. Now, what was the purpose of this as God's people experienced it under the Old Covenant? Under the Old Covenant, God's people were given a specific national form. Those who were professing believers in that time were ordinarily found within that nation and submitted to that government. And in doing that, the Lord provided not simply a foretaste, but also a picture of things to come. People who were alive then would experience when they were cooperating with God's purpose there, they would experience the benefits that come living under the chosen king. And that was a foretaste of things to come. It was also a picture for our sake. It was a picture of what it will be like when God's people are united, joined together in submission to Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 10 states very plainly God's purpose. Ephesians 1.10. God has made known to us, that is people living now after Christ has come, God has made known to us the mystery of his will concerning his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ, In other words, before God even created the world, it was his purpose, his plan, to turn the kingdom over under Christ and for all of his people to be united as one. Both Jew and Gentile, all believers, one church, brought into joy and unity and submission together. What is the reality, though? The reality under most of the Old Covenant is that more often than not, they existed in civil warfare and strife not acknowledging the true line of the kings. And in this time as well, as we await the full manifestation of Christ's glory, is it not the case that the kingdom of God is terribly rent in terms of the visible church, in terms of the kingdom as we experience it presently, by all kinds of divisions, and by all kinds of false loyalties? So then what is the Holy Spirit teaching us through this passage? Tonight, the Holy Spirit is going to call you to do the very thing that you see happening here with the elders and with Abner himself. We are all called to rise and to gather the Israel of God unto Christ. That is his will, and it is what Christ is worthy of. As it says in verse 21, to apply it to Jesus, of whom David was simply a type, that he may reign over all that his heart desires. That is our longing 
to see Christ sitting in manifested glory over all of his people. How do we do that? How do we seek that? What would it look like? As we consider this passage together, we're going to look at it under three main headings. The third will serve as a conclusion. And I'm going to announce each of them as we come to them. Three main headings, starting with this. By the way, each of these is going to be a different kind of necessity. A different kind of necessity. Something necessary in order to do what this passage leads us to. The first necessity is this. There is a necessity of dissatisfaction. If you would see Christ more and more glorified through the unifying of his people in submission to him, you must become dissatisfied. Not every kind of dissatisfaction is bad. Sometimes it's just complaining. Sometimes it's grumbling. But you must become dissatisfied with the fact that there are many people over whom Christ has a right who are not submitted to him and who are at odds with one another in the kingdom. And that has to actually bother you if you are ever going to do something about it meaningfully. In the original context, think about it. As long as the tribes were content to be two separate functionally, two separate nations, they were not going to become unified. As long as they were okay with the fact that there are two different kings, and one of them is certainly not the true king. They can't both be the true king. But if they're okay with that, well, you know what? We know that one of them is not God's chosen king, but economically, things are going pretty good. Or, you know what, at least we're not fighting, and there would be a lot of strife in bringing us back together. Whatever the, or we don't trust them. Whatever the reason being, if they aren't dissatisfied with the disunity, they're not going to seek unity. And what will be the consequence? Hostility will continue. They will forfeit the blessings that God has ordained for his people. Now, under the new covenant, the structures of the old covenant, in terms of the temple, the national system, those things give way. And what comes in their place are the structures of the new covenant. I want to be very clear, and I hope, especially you younger adults or you teens, maybe some of you not quite teens, but you can get this. You need to grasp that, what I just said and what I did not say. Gentiles did not replace Jews. The church did not replace Israel. The Bible uses the word Israel interchangeably at both times for the visible people of God. In fact, let me give you an example of this. Galatians 6, verse 15 and 16. Galatians 6, 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That is, new birth. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Here, Paul, a Jew born of the tribe of Benjamin, is speaking to Gentiles in the city of Galatia, and he calls them part of the Israel of God so long as they have come to faith. The Israel of God are those, at this time as we would recognize it, who are submitted under the new covenant, who are part of the Christian church, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, insofar as we are the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth and Christ is the king, we cannot expect a greater degree of submission to him and a greater degree of unity within the visible church, practically speaking, unless first we become dissatisfied 
with the disunity. It has to bother us, for instance, an example of this, that there are many people who have been elected in Jesus Christ who have not yet come to faith and are presently at odds with him. They are living their life in warfare against him. They're already elected. That's eternal. And you could say to yourself, well, I mean, they're elected. They're going to come to faith eventually, so it doesn't really bother me, so I don't worry about that. That's totally not the attitude that you find actually in the Bible. You see Paul yearning for people to come to faith. And why is that? Because it's not just about their salvation. It's about this day and this moment. Christ deserves to receive honor from them. And humanly speaking, because God uses humans as instruments, he deserves that we should want people to come to worship him. It's not just about will they or will they not be in hell. Will they or will they not be in heaven? It's on this day are they acknowledging him, just as it would have been right for all of those other tribes to acknowledge David. And then there's all the benefits. They're living outside of Christ, and life is miserable outside of Christ. And even if they're experiencing good things in the world, they're not experiencing the best things, and they're not giving their gifts to the church. There must be dissatisfaction. So there's that issue of the elect, who are part of the covenanted Israel of God, ultimately, But then there's also those who make a profession of faith, in some sense. They identify as Christians, but they are not submitted to the true Christ. People who, in a sense, are among the visible church, depending how you draw the line, they consider themselves Christians, but who don't truly know him, or in doctrine or in practice, they are in rebellion. This would have to dissatisfy us. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Hear these words. Romans 16, verse 17. The apostle says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Divisions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Do you realize how divided Christianity is through the world? And some of those divisions in God's providence are things that are indifferent, relatively indifferent. They're not a big deal. They matter, but they aren't going to be the difference between true and false Christians. And it's worth pursuing truth as brothers alongside one another trying to reach the truth together. But then there are also those who profess Christian faith and they adhere to things that are fundamentally contrary to the essence of salvation. People who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ but deny that he is truly God. We're not talking a small group of people. Within the world, there are whole regions where that's accepted. Or deny that he is truly man. Or say that his righteousness forms a part of our righteousness in terms of our justification, but not all of it. And it has to bother you that millions, millions, millions of those who profess to be Christian and claim to be representing him to others are robbing Christ of his glory. We don't hate them, but we are certainly dissatisfied. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or chapter 1, verse 10. Similarly, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
Within the church at large, I don't expect to see that realized in this age, truthfully. That there would be no divisions of any kind in the church at large. But on the congregational level, at minimum, this should be our expectation. And that was his to them. That we are dissatisfied if there's unnecessary division in the body. People teaching false things, people living in ways that tear people apart. Until you have that, there can't be a moving of people back under right submission to Christ. So that's the first idea here, the necessity of dissatisfaction. But then there's something further, and this is the second main heading. Beyond dissatisfaction, there needs to be determined action. Not just dissatisfaction. You ever encounter that in somebody? You know, they talk about being dissatisfied with the situation, and then... A path forward is presented to them, but there's no apparent desire to take the path. And how frustrating that is. You go, well, I laid out options. And every one of us, probably at different times, have been that person too. But here it's a challenge as well. Look with me. You've noticed in verse 17 that some of the elders had become dissatisfied with Ishbosheth. These are elders of Israel. These are the ones who were not submitting to David at this point. Verse 17, Abner says to them, For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. They've noticed that David is the better king, and maybe by this time, many of them have heard and they've come to believe, yeah, Samuel did anoint him. Samuel did that in secret for obvious reasons, but now it wasn't as if nobody was aware of it. There were people around when it happened, not just David. Word is getting out, and there's the obvious blessing upon David. And there's also the contrast in terms of their leadership of Ishbosheth, what is written. The only things that we read of him ever doing are lying in a bed and getting killed. He, there's nothing ever in the text to record him doing anything. Whatever battles are mentioned, he's never there. Meanwhile, you have David, does he even need an introduction? And for a long time, it says, they've been seeking to have David over them. At this juncture, though, Abner's appealing appealing to them not just to feel that way, but to do something. Look at verse 18. Now then, bring it about. Bring it about. These are the people whom, ordinarily speaking, God has put in a position where they can do something for the covenant people of God. These are leaders. These are elders. And he tells them, go about it. What would this have looked like practically? Because And we have not in our generation here, unless there's somebody from some other part of the world, we have not experienced civil war in our generation and for a long time, thank God. But what would it look like to try to bring back together a people who took one another's lives, who burned one another's fields, who did unspeakable things to one another's families? Now then, bring it about all while being the professing people of God, the ones redeemed for holiness. Think of what they're up against in terms of suspicion. I don't trust their motives. Once once they come together, they're going to be tyrants upon us. It's not going to be fair. Or they're going to go especially hard against us. You see that when Abner goes, he deals with Benjamin separately. Benjamin is the tribe from which the former king came, and he knows that he needs to deal with them separately with more tender gloves. And on top of suspicion, you have complacency. You know, 
for some people, life was fine. They weren't as directly affected. You have selfishness. Maybe somebody is in a kind of bureaucratic position, and they've, they're making good ends here. They don't want to upset the system. The same things can happen in the church, too, where for a whole variety of reasons, people do not take steps to seek unity, both in the congregation and outside, or don't take steps to bring in the lost, or don't take steps to confront error in other professing churches. Look at verse 21 with me. Abner himself. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. It's possible to impugn Abner with mixed or bad motives. It's possible that Abner is not doing this for the holiest of reasons. Abner is one of the hardest characters to figure out in the Bible. Because life is complicated, and when somebody is in a high position of authority, they often have to make decisions with limited information. And they often have to make the, the better of multiple bad decisions. There can be a compelling case made for why Abner originally thought that Ishbosheth should be king and thought that was God's will and didn't know that David was the anointed one, and now he's come to his senses. There's obviously the other opinion that Abner sees which way the wind is blowing, and he wants to get in while he can and have favor. I don't believe that we should rush to impugn Abner's motives to think the worst, especially with somebody among the covenant people of God unless you absolutely have to. Nor should we do the same with one another and with other churches. That can be challenging, though, because it's easy to verge quickly into suspicion. We'll come back to that in a moment, but at least appreciate this. In this story, whatever Abner's motives are, you are called to act out of a pure heart, to seek these things from a pure heart. And there's no question what he was seeking was good. How do we seek to gather all Israel under Christ? For them, it looked different, obviously. They're in a national situation. They're trying to bring people under David's authority. For us, we are doing something else, something related but different. Speaking of the reality here, we're trying to bring people into right submission, full submission to Christ. Think about the very nature of discipleship. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey whatsoever Jesus commanded, all of it. And so we're trying to bring people to that. First, though it's not mentioned in the text, the first is prayer. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, pray for Catholicity, true Catholicity. Catholicity simply means that there is one true church throughout all the world who is known to God, and the yearning for that true church, as much as the Lord would bless us, to act and manifest the unity that we truly possess. The Lord desires us not that we just be content with the invisible realities and the promise of the age to come. He delights to see his people dwell together in unity. How beautiful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You ever think about that? If we wanted to, if we wanted to say, let's get all God's people in Phoenix together under one roof and let's worship together. It sounds like a beautiful idea. 
Then you start asking, which ones? Who are God's people in Phoenix? And I don't feel comfortable, and they worship different than me. Much of that is legitimate. Some of that has to be wrestled with. It begins, secondly, after prayer. And I would invite you to, by the way, look at the prayer of, say, Jesus in John 17. I desire, Father, that they would be one, even as we are one. And he's speaking of all his people throughout the world. Second, it begins at dealing with our own house first, this congregation. That we do not let secondary and tertiary things become the dividing line in our charity with one another. Or that we accept multiple standards other than the word for how people are going to live their life. Christ is the king. Christ is the king and we bring everyone under that. Period. By the way, I intend not to overstep my bounds speaking from the limits of the scripture and of our confessions. But what is our standard for what is worthy of division? We have one. I mean, second to, obviously, the Bible, but the Bible says a lot of things. What do we believe it believes or teaches? The confession. Our various confessions are the forms, our summaries of what we believe. And yet it is so tempting to allow things that are extra confessional to become whether or not we are even going to sit with people in the church, whether or not we are going to regard them as our brother and sister in the Lord. I regret that I have heard people, and I have my own sins, I'm not saying I'm innocent, but I've heard people in our own family here, and I'm, whether it's taped, this is our church, this is our church, I have at times heard people say things like, if a person believes this, and it's something that is so tertiary, then that person can't even be saved. That is so at odds with the spirit of Christ and of hope. Love hopes for others and lives for others. Seeks their good in these things. Yes, we must contend. And that's the spirit of Reformed Catholicity. That's the Reformed part in it. Always going back to the scriptures. It's not just in the air. It's not sentimentalism. But then we take action. And this means striving, first in the church and then More broadly, Philippians 4, Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. These are two women who are in the church who are fighting. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same thing in the Lord. Come back to your unity. And then to strive for greater unity among churches at large. This is something that uh, our, our own classes here is feeling its way through right now. And others are as well. In the Northwest recently, the, or, yeah, the Pacific Northwest classes of the URCNA, they just received a church coming out of the CRC that wanted to enter the URC. And of course, there's a process for that of saying, can we have greater unity? Will this be a closer fit in the Lord? And we're doing the same thing right now here in the Southwest. As there's a church that's interested to know, would they be, could they fit fully with us? Can they subscribe to our forms and to the church order? Even if it's ruled that for various reasons, say liturgically, they or any other church can't subscribe to our church order, if they subscribe to our confessions, they're not our enemies, they're our allies, but strategically we see an impasse and we'll continue to try to work through that. But the temptation is to look at everyone who's not just like us and to say, in some sense, they're the enemy, to have a kind of autoimmune response to over-respond 
Verse 24, look with me. Then Joab, who is a general on David's side, who hears that David met with Abner, then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? In other words, this was your chance. You could have caught him and killed him. And he says, You know that Abner, the son of Ner, just came to deceive you and you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. He's just a spy. We're going to see next time Joab. Joab is not primarily concerned for the glory of God and the good of David here. But there are those who, in terms of the kingdom at large, professing Christians in all various camps who delight in the combat. There is a need to contend for the truth, but there is no delight in combat. It's a frightening thing when you see somebody who delights in war. People have to do it, both temporally and spiritually, but to delight in it is not of the Lord. We've seen at this point God's revealed will is for his people to be gathered under Christ more and more to manifest the age to come. And we've seen that we are to seek that in practical ways. This is, before we come to the final point, which will serve as our conclusion, I want to acknowledge this is challenging. This is the hard stuff. Think how hard, again, it would have been for Abner and for the elders to go to their people and actually try to bring this about. And that's why the first step is prayer. It is challenging, but I want you to consider what you see in verse 20. David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. David made a feast for a man who impaled one of David's closest friends. Do you remember that? Asahel, earlier in the book. David is not simply concerned for himself, his own vendettas. He's concerned for the welfare of all God's covenant people and the glory of the Lord. And he knows if we can lay this civil war to rest, millions are blessed. And David knows part of that is doing what is in his power to demonstrate magnanimity, a a big-heartedness towards a former foe who has pledged that he is on board for peace. How much more is Christ Jesus willing to welcome at his table all who truly repent? All who come to submit to him. He received us. He received a Saul of Tarsus who was persecuting his people. As we look upon Christ and look practically at the way he receives people, that by the Holy Spirit's work transforms us. We look into his face and then our face begins to shine. It's like Moses coming back with the the face of glory. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we behold the glory of God, his true character, then we begin to be transformed. When you look at the way that Christ loves his enemies, everyone who returns to him and seeks mercy, it has to touch you. Christ wants you to be an ambassador of that same mercy, that same big-heartedness towards those who are outside. That doesn't mean it's not hard. It's very hard. But this is what we're called to. And as a final heading, we are called, we have a necessity, we're called to lean upon divine hope. We have a necessity for it. 
You don't give up hope that the Lord will bring this about. Look with me at verse 18. Abner's charge to the elders. What is it based on? When he tells them, actually go and do something about it, what does he say? Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Now it is worth asking, when did the Lord say this and how does Abner know it? So far as we can see, unless there's something not recorded for us in the scripture, and there are many things that are true that are not recorded in the scripture, this was the promise that was originally set over Saul as king. And Abner's making an appropriate deduction. The promise was ultimately not about Saul or about David. It's about the Lord's anointed king. And God has promised that this king is going to bring the enemies into submission and bring about blessedness for his covenant people. Abner tells them, get up and do this because God has made a promise. But the way that God brings his promises to fulfillment is by using his people walking in faith. God ordains the ends, he also ordains the means, and it's our delight to get to be a part of that. That gives us hope when we see that there are even greater promises given concerning Christ, of whom David's just a type. Psalm 110, verse 1, David prophesies, Yahweh, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Who is David talking about when he says, the Lord said to my Lord? David had no earthly Lord over him. He's the king. The book of Hebrews says very plainly he was prophesying concerning Christ, who though a man and a king descended from the line of David is yet truly God, and therefore the Lord over even David. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Who's going to make the enemies a footstool? God is going to make the enemies a footstool. And God is going to bring all those who are at enmity with Christ who are among his elect into voluntary, loving submission to him. And so we seek this knowing that he will succeed. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then shall come the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It is that hope that drives us. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, yearn to see this. And it's our prayer that something like this is being preached from time to time throughout all the congregations of Arizona and America and this world. That the church yearns and strives. Think in our history even some of you are familiar, say our, uh, those, theologically, we come from a Dutch ethnic background, or a Dutch theological background. I'm not ethnically Dutch, but theologically, I'm quite Dutch, apparently, and they are quite Augustinian from uh, northern Africa, and that's taken from the Bible, from the Mideast, so you can trace it out. But in our own little history here, you have a time where many Christians left the state church in the Netherlands, because the state church was taking control over things like church discipline and who could be a minister. And then, about 50 years later, another group comes out of that church, out of the state church. 
It would have been so easy for them to remain separate, but they came together. They came together. How beautiful that was. And I'm not saying in every instance it's practicable for that. But the reason why churches don't find greater partnership together should not be through some fault of our own, some complacency or some enmity, because it is a delight. It is a delight to see the people of the Lord work together. Let's ask the Lord to help us even now with that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us pictures in the Old Testament that give us a taste of what would the kingdom be like when we see Christ more and more enthroned. We thank you for having preserved the scriptures even to this very night, and we ask that you would please stir us up to seek these things. We pray this evening for your blessing upon churches throughout this valley. We think of our brothers at Calvin OPC who have served us recently. We ask that you would pour out your blessing upon them. Open the gates wide for them to be more effective as your servants. We pray for partnerships that are healthy and sound in the faith. And that you'd help us to deal with one another in understanding. That you'd preserve us from all deceit. And everything we long for Christ to be glorified. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us a burning passion to see those who have not yet come to faith in Christ do so. And for those who profess Christ and yet stand in communions that are utterly opposed to him in doctrine or in life, we pray that you would please work in them too. Use us as those who make an appeal. Send us out, Lord, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.